0: Welcome to The Blind Side, news and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Moser. As always, it is great to have you here. Welcome back if you're a regular listener to the podcast. If you've never listened before, a special welcome to you. I hope that you enjoy what you hear and become one of our many, many regulars. Really appreciate everybody listening every week. Our main feature today is a pretty geeky, exciting project called Team Tactile. You may have read news about this in the tech publications because it's got quite a bit of publicity and justifiably so. We're going to be speaking with a couple of engineers on the Team Tactile project, which is an MIT project which is seeking to produce a device that will transcribe print into braille. And if you think, well, I can already do that with my cell phone or my scanner, listen in, because this is a device that could make the whole process a lot easier. We'll be speaking with Charlene Gia and Tanya Yu, who are two of the students involved. And we'll also hear from Paul Paravano, who is a blind person involved in government relations at MIT. And he's been acting as a kind of informal consultant. So we'll talk with Paul not just about this project, but also about his work at MIT and some of the challenges that they may be facing in the Trump administration. Well, the excitement is over. Finally, you will recall if you were listening last week, I was all excited about the arrival of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and we did manage to pull off that exciting show. We're at 5 a.m. New Zealand time on the very morning the remix was released. We got on Mushroom FM and did a three-hour special, an amazing response to that with people listening from all around the world and geeking out to all sorts of Beatles stuff. And then later on that day, I got the 5.1 surround sound mixes once we picked up the Sgt. Pepper's Super Deluxe Edition. And I got to tell you, if you are remotely interested in the Beatles, if you don't have access to a 5.1 surround sound system, try and go somewhere where somebody has such a system and the 5.1 mix of Sgt. Pepper, because it's absolutely stunning. Such a big, expansive sound stage for the Beatles to be playing on. And it really is super impressive. But the excitement never ends, you know. It's always good to have things to look forward to, isn't it? This week, it's House of Cards Season 5 dropping on Netflix. And in fact, I'm putting the finishing touches to this podcast together before House of Cards drops. Because I'm probably going to do a bit of binge watching. Although I have to say, you have to wonder what they might come up with in House of Cards Season 5 that kind of beats real political life in the United States at the moment. You know what I mean? It's, it's kind of interesting to see how they outweird the current political climate. Next week, of course, even more excitement. And I want to give you a bit of a heads up, a bit of a program note about what you can expect on The Blind Side next week, because we will be publishing a day earlier than we normally do. We try to get this podcast out on a Wednesday New Zealand time. That's Tuesday US and UK time. We don't always succeed due to other work commitments, but we're generally pretty consistent about that. But next week, we will be publishing a day early because we have a special that we'll be putting together immediately after Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference. This is where we first start to learn about what Apple is going to be putting ...and the latest versions of its operating systems. And that includes iOS 11 for your iPhone and your iPad. It will include TV OS for the Apple TV, Watch OS and of course Mac OS. We may well hear about a new Siri speaker to rival the Amazon Echo and the Google Home... And a lot more besides, we're going to assemble a panel of experts to talk you through what this means for us and perhaps do a bit of speculating about what we'll be seeing in September, which is when we expect that Apple will get us all together again. And so I'm sure that you will find that a very interesting listen. Look for it pretty soon after WWDC because we're going to record right away and we're going to publish right away. For the curious, we'll be joined by Apple expert, Apple ambassador, in fact, and Apple podcaster extraordinaire David Woodbridge from Australia, who will be up bright and early at 3 a.m. That's when WWDC comes on where he is. Not so bad for me. It's only 5 a.m. in New Zealand. So David will be here to talk us through some of the issues. Jeff Bishop, a regular technology contributor and Apple fan and expert, will also be here. I'll be making some comments as well. And Heidi Mosen will be joining us. We've found over the years that it's always good to have somebody who knows what a blind person might be interested in looking for and who has the eyeballs that work to tell us these things. And so she'll be taking a good look at the slides that maybe they don't have a chance to go into great detail about that are running past the screen. And she'll be taking snaps of those slides and telling us about them, and also describing anything that is displayed, such as the series speaker. So we're really going to have a podcast that will help you get completely clued in from a blindness perspective on matters WWDC. You might also like to contribute to the discussion that is going on on the Mosin Consulting blog. As has become my tradition over the last few years, I've put together a blog post containing my personal top 10 wish list for what I'd like to see In iOS 11, and this often stimulates some comments from others who maybe agree with some of my suggestions and disagree with others and come up with some really good ideas that I just didn't think of. So if you'd like to read my post and contribute to the discussion, head on over to the Mosin Consulting website at mosin.org, that's M-O-S-E-N.org hit up the blog link and it's the latest post there on the blog. I can also tell you that Mosin Consulting will be publishing iOS 11 without the eye. We started this series in 2013 with iOS 7 without the eye. Consistently since then, we have released a comprehensive guide to the latest version of iOS from a blindness perspective on the very day that iOS is released. We usually drop it just ahead of, of the release of iOS by Apple so that you have it in your hands to talk you through the process of upgrading and getting familiar with the new features. It'll be 1995 once again this year and iOS 11 without the eye will hit on iOS 11 release day. Let's look ahead to later in the week as well. We like to tell you what's coming up on our global call-in show, A at the Mosin. And this week we're going to be talking about a subject which affects many of us, and this is ride-sharing and taxi services and the problems that we face. We do expect to hear from a range of guide dog users from around the world about issues that they have faced with ride-sharing and taxi services, The kinds of problems you've encountered, how you've complained, how seriously were they taken by the company concerned and, if necessary, by authorities. What's the best way to handle these issues when you're confronted with them? Do you take on the driver or is it better to let the matter go for now and take up the matter in another forum where somebody might be a little more sympathetic? So we'll look at all of the aspects of this. There is another slightly more sensitive aspect to this, that was raised with me when someone suggested that we cover this on a At The Mosins, and this is the language barrier. Because for a blind person, it can be very hard to communicate with somebody via gestures. Even if you're good at gestures, and as a totally blind person who's never seen, you may not be, you can't obviously see the person gesturing back at you. If you are in an English-speaking country, do you think it's reasonable for there to be an English language requirement, an English language test, that drivers in ride-sharing and taxi services must pass before they're allowed out on the road taking passengers? Or is that unduly restrictive and, some people would say, racist? Let us know what you think about the taxi services and ride-sharing services in the context of blindness. It's our global call-in show, A Kappa at the Mosens which you can hear on Mushroom FM on a Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. If you want to find out when that is in your time zone, then head on over to the Mushroom FM schedule page at mushroomfm.com schedule. And of course, you can find out all the ways that you can call. There are numbers all around the world. You can call using the Firefox or Chrome web browser and the address for that, the homepage of the show, mushroomfm.com slash kappa. That's mushroomfm.com slash C-U-P-P-A. Our place, our issues, The
1: Blind Side with Jonathan Moser.
0: When you're putting a project together at the world-famous MIT, there's no shortage of potential project ideas. But a group of MIT students have chosen to focus on a concept That might make the world a more accessible place for blind people. Known as Team Tactile, the group comprises six undergraduate seniors from mechanical engineering, materials science, and electrical engineering and computer science. They've created quite an impression, if you'll pardon the pun, having just won the prestigious Levelson MIT Prize. To tell us about that, we've got two of the students from Team Tactile. And actually, what I'll let them do is introduce themselves. Would you like to go first, Charlie?
2: Okay. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Charlene. Uh, I'm a senior here at MIT uh, studying mechanical engineering.
0: And Tanya?
3: Uh, hi, I'm Tanya. I am also a senior at MIT, and I'm studying electrical engineering and computer science.
0: How did your team decide to get involved in this area of blindness? Because being involved with MIT as you are, you've got a world of opportunities opened to all of you. Why pick blindness as something that you focused on with this project?
2: Our project started actually at a hackathon. It was a Harvard hackathon hosted by Make MIT. So, a hackathon, for those of you, uh, just a quick uh, explanation. A hackathon is where um, you walk into the area with an idea and they give you 24 hours and you can work on whatever you want for 24 hours. And at the end of 24 hours, you call it a day and the judges judge your uh, project and they decide to, you know, and they list the award and they give out a award. So, Make MIT was special, it was a little bit special because a hardware hackathon. So they provided you with some material. The night before, I think, the hackathon, we were sitting around in our room and we were talking about ideas of what to do in that, you know, 24 hour. What should we make? It started out as a weekend for you know friends to gather, escape from schoolwork and have fun, you know, make something that's you know that kind of just friends having fun together. So the first few ideas that we threw out was a uh, we, we first saw we saw like oh a dancing robot we saw out like toy to help you study and then we were looking up concept design and uh, one of our teammate, Jessica Shee she saw this concept design of a bra watch and then we started thinking oh that's interesting I didn't know like this existed and then we started thinking about oh how about we generalize this idea and we thought about I mean it came out of and uh, we thought of um a text-to-brow converter, and that's how Tactile was born.
0: You could make the world a better place for people who are often overlooked. Was that a factor in your decision?
2: Oh yes, definitely, exactly. So when we first started uh, with um, like going to make uh, going to the hackathon, we were thinking about just doing something fun. But then all of us, you know, when we saw the idea, oh, let's make a dancing party robot. We weren't really motivated to do this project. But when we came up with the idea of a text-to-brow converter, uh, all of a sudden everybody was on board. And everybody was like, oh, my God, that's such a great idea. Let's do this. Just because, you know, we didn't know uh, at that time, of course, to us, it was just a fun project to do. And we know that it's a useful, it seems, it's it's, for us, it seemed like a useful idea. But at that time, we didn't know what kind of the potential impact it could have. But it was to us at that point, it was a challenging technical project that combined our skill. And at the same time, at first glance, it seems very applicable in real life. And that's what inspired us to spend the next 15 hours creating tactile.
0: It's really encouraging to me that you guys use terms like hackathon still because hacking has got a bad name. And it always makes me a bit sad because when I was involved in this stuff uh, when I was much younger, hacking was an honorable thing. You know, in fact, hacking was a way that initially blind people got access to Windows because there wasn't any officially supported way back then of getting into the display layer so that a blind person could get access to Windows at all. And so that was good old-fashioned hacking in the true sense of the word, not as into like breaking into things. So it's nice to know you still use that term. Oh,
2: hacking has a pretty positive connotation here at MIT.
0: (laughs) Text to Braille. How does this actually work in practice? You've obviously taken this product quite some distance now since that initial idea of putting it together. I've got a smartphone, and I also have a Braille display, and I can take a picture with my smartphone of a document, and it will show up on the Braille display by virtue of the fact that my Braille display is connected to my iPhone. But it sounds like what you're doing is trying to make an all-in-one device that significantly simplifies and hopefully uh, lessens the cost of getting text converted to Braille right on the fly.
3: Right, so our goal is to create something that's really portable and really easy to use. So the idea is that everything is contained inside one package. You take our device, place it directly on top of whatever like menu or book that you want to read and it'll take a picture and you can read the braille text on top immediately. So the benefit I our idea is basically that you, know, you don't have to carry around so many extra devices all the time. And just with one thing, you can um, get Braille really easily whenever you want.
2: Uh, in addition, like having one thing I can see is that with our device, uh, you skip the intermediate step of taking the picture on your phone and transferring it to your Braille device. And once you transfer it, you start reading, you realize the orientation of the camera was off. And the picture you take doesn't actually quite take the whole block of text, and you had to go back, retake, you know, use your phone, retake the image and kind of guess and get the picture just right, and then send it to the Braille display again. And instead, what we, tactile, what we do is that once you play tactile on a paper, it, 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 you skip the paper, you skip the intermediate step of like testing to see if you capture the right image, because we will design tactile so that you will be able to capture the, the text as clearly as possible in the first try.
0: What you're taking on is a really significant challenge in a whole number of respects. And I would imagine the most complex one is actually the mechanical process. I've worked in product management for a couple of the world's big assistive technology companies. And I have been approached by engineers who wanted to do low cost braille devices. And one of the big challenges is getting braille that that's popping up quick enough so that it's responsive that also feels like braille and that's reasonably cost effective to produce. Because I'm sure you guys have looked into the research um, that's already been done and the fact that piezoelectric cells are really expensive, old mechanical technology, but nothing has really replaced them yet for producing reliable braille that feels like braille. So you will have had some challenges there, I'm sure.
2: Exactly. So once we, when we first, so after the hackathon, we did a lot of research into what kind of current technology exists uh, for the visual impaired community, specifically in the field of like Braille. And we noticed that most traditional Braille displays, as you know, are pretty expensive, costing up to the thousands to like five thousands. And like you were saying, the one, re- uh, the technology behind it, like piezoelectric, hasn't changed that much, and it's also really expensive. So we did a lot of research in potential technology that we could possibly use to replace pairs of electric. We look into um, memory-shaped alloy. We look into uh, uh, electroactive polymer. And right now, we have settled down in two different uh, directions. We settled down, uh, we are trying out a micro mechanism, and we are trying out an um, magnetic actualization uh, mechanism. To try to see which of those technology can create the can create the cheaper brow display that also fits the constraint and had the feel and texture of a really good brow character.
0: And so, if you crack that, you may have come up with something that has applications well beyond your device. Because if if people can produce whole displays with this technology that you might develop where Braille can be produced reliably, but much more cheaply, there'll be considerable interest in that, I would think.
2: Yes, the holy grail of uh, Braille technology will be definitely in that beautiful full screen display, which we are keeping in the back of our head, because every time, every step we develop technology, we're also thinking, challenging ourselves, oh, if I do it this way, is it possible to implement to somehow in the future develop it so it can be implemented and used in a full screen display? So it is something that we're definitely considering.
0: Yeah, I mean, that is the holy grail, isn't it? At the moment, Braille displays are single line for the most part. And so representing any kind of graph or something like that electronically is not possible. So part of that is because of the cost. And so that, that would be an exciting application for this. So how far along are you? I mean, have you have you got a device that's usable at this point or is it still in the conceptual stage?
2: Yeah, so I would definitely say we're still in the research and development phase. We have currently once our fifth iteration. Uh, The fifth iteration has a camera and a device kind of standalone by itself. Uh, It has a uh, five-character brow display. Uh, The brow display is quite large. It's not the regular uh, brow display. Regular brow cell size is about four times larger. So we're currently working on developing a new technology, shrinking it down, and, of course, making... Uh, tactile, as compact, and as portable as possible.
0: So there's a software element to this too that we haven't talked about yet. What operating system are you doing all of this on?
3: Right now we're prototyping. So for, I guess, easy, fast prototyping, we've been using a Raspberry Pi for a microcontroller. So basically the Raspbian Linux system. Um, Moving forward, uh, eventually we are obviously hoping to um, move away from this because it has a lot of like extra components that we don't need. So eventually, I guess, we are still figuring out what type of microcontroller we will use in the future.
0: Do you think that you will get to a point where this might be commercial technology? Is that the end game? Or is it still largely an academic kind of exercise at this point? Where do you see this ending up?
2: Uh, that's a, that's a, so ideally, we do want to see tactile beyond the market in the future we have set ourselves a uh, timeline of two years to have the technology and tactile to be able to be manufacturable. That's
0: really exciting. So what does it look like, this device? Can you, can you give me a kind of a, an, an audio tour of, of how big it is? Um, can you carry this thing in your pocket? What's it like?
2: Okay, So the current design that we're targeting is to have it no larger than the size of an iPhone 7 um, so, so iPhone seven is quite big, but it would be slightly thicker than the iPhone seven to accommodate the refreshable brow display. And it would be something that you should be able to carry if not in your pocket, but definitely in your backpack or um, purse. Portability is something that um, most of the users really like.
0: I imagine that when you do a project like this, you do consider the business case, and of course, the number of people. Even globally, who read Braille is sadly way too small, so it's not a big market, is it? Does that mean that you might have to spread the cost of development across quite a small number of units?
2: Yes, we understand that um, uh, the market that we're talking very small, so therefore we cannot, we probably won't be able to uh, manufacture our device at a large quantity, and which means that the price of the, the manufacturing price will go up. Uh, it's a challenge that we're currently tackling. And I, I can give you a definite solution on how uh, how this will affect our costs, but throughout the design process, uh, we're keeping it in mind. And whenever we can find wherever we can find a chance to make to maintain the high quality while cutting down costs, we'll take the opportunity to do so.
0: And you've obviously attracted some attention because you recently won this prestigious prize, which is actually how I came to find out about Team Tactile when I read a news article about this. Tell me a bit about that prize and what it means for you and how you got to the process of of winning that.
3: We're definitely very excited to um, have been given this huge honour from and mit We applied once before last year
2: um, when we were, I guess, less uh, must
3: develop in our project
2: oh so i had a previous project uh, in my sophomore year that i applied to limousine uh, we were the finalists but we didn't get a prize so when tactile applied for mit limousine uh, we applied not so much i was thinking that we win the money but it's a it's a way to build momentum to keep having a goal in mind for us to continue our project we're all students here at MIT with how we have a bunch of homework, tests coming up. So it's always nice to set a goal that you want to reach. So applying application to Limousine was a goal that we want to reach. So when we decided to apply for Limousine, we said that oh, Limousine is on this day. So before this day, we're going to submit our application. We're going to make a new prototype so we can submit this new prototype designed for this application. So a, it was a nice way. For us to set a deadline and keep up the momentum and keep up the iteration, the product iteration as we work, as we go through, as we work on tactile. So when we find out that we won Limelson, it was quite a quite a quite a surprise because we wasn't expecting it. It was such a huge honor. I remember uh, when they called us about the award, it went to voicemail because we were in the middle of class and can't really answer a call. And one of our teammate who got the voicemail sent us a message because she wasn't able to answer the call. She just sent out a message saying, oh my God, guys, I got a, a call from Lemosa they left a voicemail and I have no clue what they're saying, what's happening. So we had to wait for classes over and was like, oh my, we were all pretty like nervous. We're kind of hopeful, but don't want to be, you know, overly optimistic. It was definitely a very pleasant surprise to get that voice, uh, get that phone call to say we have got the, we have won the, MIT Lemelson User
0: Prize. Yeah, so and you can't you can't answer the voicemail, but you can you can answer the text message. That my daughter's an electrical engineering student, and that's what I've learned too. I can she'll always answer me even in a lecture if I text her. So nice to know this <laughs> universal thing. So you got you got the notification, and it must have been a bit of a whirlwind since then, right? Having been awarded this prize, you've attracted a lot more publicity for the project. Oh yeah,
2: definitely.
0: So is it fair to say it's kinda of like the World Series or the Super Bowl of, of engineering winning this prize? You know, it's it's a big deal, right?
2: Yes. Uh, the Lemelson MIT Prize is used to award a mentor and innovator. And it was it, it's a it's a great honor to have your idea that something you so we all spend our free time working on tactile to have, you know, something that you work on to be recognized to this degree. So it's definitely like a great motivational boost
0: for everyone. All six of you must be very creative people in your fields. What is the team dynamic like? Because I imagine that not only are you learning about applying the principles that you've learned in purely mechanical or electrical terms, whatever your field is, but you are learning about give and take and cooperation and trying things that don't work. There's a lot of learning about the wider dynamics of life beyond the, the, the principles of the tasks that you're doing?
3: I guess maybe that we have is that we have all been friends for like four years now. And so we do know each other quite well and get along. So we haven't really had a lot of like huge conflicts, but it's definitely been a learning experience about how to work with, especially six people is a lot. And especially when you're like during the summer, we were all apart. And I think one of the huge things that I've learned personally is how really crucial like constant communication is because we all try to keep make sure that everyone is up to date. Everyone knows exactly what's going on, even when we are apart and can't be together.
0: I mean, these days you have so much ability to communicate, even when you're not physically present Um, technologies like Slack or other team software. Uh, just good old fashioned messaging. It's easier to keep in touch now, and um, and just just constantly be comparing notes and adding things to the mix. I would think.
2: Yes, we do use Slack actually. So yeah, I thought you might. Yeah. yeah. Uh, interesting. One thing benefit. I uh, think for us, one good thing about us being friends that we can be very straightforward with each other, and we're not shy uh, to confirm each other when we think one person's uh, one our teammate's work is lacking. Nobody takes the criticism like, for themselves. They know that when we critique, it's always on their work, but not personally. We go out for dinner. We always hang out.
0: It's so. wonderful when you can enjoy what you do like that, isn't it? And And get stuff done at the same time.
2: Yeah, it's very nice.
0: Yeah. And we're We're going to be talking to Paul Paravano in a minute about his involvement with just just being somebody who you've been able to bounce ideas off as a blind person. Have you widened the net at all? How many blind, um, I guess, not really beta testers, probably not even alpha testers yet, but people who, who live blindness and help you with the concepts, have you involved at this point?
2: Paul's amazing. We always come to him when we have questions, and he's always there available to help us. Uh, so, besides Paul, we, ha- we go to... So, Boston is a great area. Uh, here in Boston, we have the National Apparel Press close by. We have the Perkins School of the Blind close by. We have Kiro Center for the Blind close by. And we have visited all three and talked to all three institutes to tell them about our product and give feedback and throw ideas off them. And once we have a prototype, alpha prototype ready for user testing, we'll be definitely going to Paul, going to every one of them, to get as much user feedback as possible
0: how long do you think it will take between when somebody snaps a picture i mean i presume it is taking a still image it's not live video so somebody will snap <laughs> a picture and then eventually uh, ocr is performed and it pops up in braille do you have a target in mind for how long that should typically take
2: when we capture the text mm, so, the, so the area of text that we capture usually is bigger than the uh, forwards <clears> are <throat> right yep. now right text we capture, it's maybe a paragraph. However, we can only display ideally 36 letter at a time. Mm-hmm. So from capturing the image to complete OCR conversion, uh, current estimation, depending on the software and the font and the complexity, we would like it to be less than one second.
0: Right. So I guess what happens then is that a Braille reader will be engaging with the first part of the text And as far as they're concerned, it's there because they're reading it. But in the background, the rest of the text is being processed. So it could be quite a rapid thing. It's wonderful what you're doing. And I want to congratulate you for how far you've come so far, not just for where you've got to already, but also the fact that you came up with this idea in the first place and that this is something that you chose to pursue when there were so many other things that you could have done. It's a real credit to you.
2: Oh no! We would like to thank you for your attention, and uh, I think we speak for everyone. Like really, talking with uh, the visual community really helped us to get a motivation to continue the project. Um, uh, we use the term positive feedback. Uh, it's a uh, quite a nerdy, have a, like a quite nerdy connotation, just because it's a feedback system. You gotta have the feedback to have more gang anyway sorry nerdy thing <laughs> we
0: absolutely love nerdy here there yeah. <laughs> we that people people who listen to this podcast tend to geek out on all of this stuff so i know there'll be a lot of interest so so thank you so much it's been a real pleasure to talk with you and um, we'll look forward to seeing what happens next
2: Right. Thank you so much for your time.
0: And joining me for another perspective on this is Paul Paravana, who works for MIT in the government relations field and actually is a listener to this podcast. So Paul contacted me a couple of weeks before I saw the story. Some things are just meant to be. Welcome to The Blind Side, Paul.
1: Jonathan, I'm delighted to be with you. I'm a big fan of your podcast and of the written materials that you've produced over the years, and I'm really honoured to have this opportunity to talk about Team Tactile.
0: That's very kind. Thank you. It's, it's wonderful stuff, isn't it? it? really gives you hope when a bunch of young people are putting all this attention into solving a, a problem that we have like this.
1: It, it's terribly exciting, and they've outlined for you you know, how their thought process went, and I can echo really what they've said, that uh, hacking is a really positive thing here. Uh, MIT hacks are featured in the MIT Museum. There's a book about them. And uh, a hackathon now is often established to solve problems uh, and to really tap some of the talent and energy and uh, creativity and imagination that so many of our students have. Over the years, I've often been contacted by students who want to build something that will have some kind of impact on a blind person's life. Um, there was a watch developed here. Perhaps you have heard of the Bradley watch. I should
0: uh, own one of those, yeah.
1: Yes, and uh, that was discussed years ago in my office uh, with a gentleman who uh, came up with the idea. And there have been other things. There have been teaching tools for learning Braille uh, that was featured in an engineering design competition a couple years ago. I think that's available on Uh, video where uh, a team of students presented a uh, business case and a a design for a teaching tool for uh, young children who wanted to learn Braille. And I recall that in that presentation, they asked me to kick it off, and I held up a little piece of wood, a block of wood that my father gave me when I was four years old with six holes in it. And I remember we used marbles to create the various Braille uh, letters, and that's how I learned Braille. So we went from that tool to a more modern version of a, of a, a teaching tool that children can use.
0: Braille has obviously played an important part in your life then. You know, there are some people who feel that computer technology has uh, rendered Braille obsolete. It sounds like it's important to you. You feel passionate about it.
1: I really do. And I think, you know, everybody's different. And while it's true that audio is everywhere and there are lots of great uh, opportunities to take advantage of the technology that audio has uh, developed. But for me, Braille is critical for the work that I do. I'm often in meetings when I need a a quiet way to look up information. So I use a Braille display in that way. I store a lot of my information in my braille note taker. And I also think in education, I can't imagine uh, doing mathematics or learning a language and and studying a variety of topics without uh, using braille. So whether it's keeping a list in my personal life of things I need to get done for my family or at home or work-related notes and phone numbers and information that I must have, uh, to serve the leadership here at MIT, I think Braille is really critical. But when it comes to email, you know, the vast amount of email that I get, there's no way I could do that in Braille. And so I use audio quite willingly in that situation and many others.
0: Mm. So it's finding the right tool in the toolbox to get the job done most effectively.
1: Exactly right.
0: Take me through when these students meet with you for the first time with their idea. How did that play out?
1: Well, it's a, you know, it's a delightful thing. And I, I should say that one of the big goals we have here at MIT is to help students learn not only the academic material, the, the material that they get from their classes, but also to be mindful of what else is going on in the world around them to think about community service, to think about global challenges that we're facing. So when I get approached uh, by students with these kinds of ideas, and in particular by Team Tactile, uh, it's a very stimulating, exciting opportunity to say, this is how I use Braille. This is the kind of application that I would make because they were really not familiar with how braille is used and what technology is already out there i showed them you know the various apps i have on my iphone the knfb reader and various text capturing uh, apps that are out there and how i rely on my smartphone to give me different pieces of information but also uh, what a challenge it is when i'm confronted by a situation where I'm given a a printed handout or I'm at a conference or in a new place where it would be really such a great advantage to be able to read something uh, quickly and independently the way that this tactile device is intended to do. So it gave me an opportunity when I first met with them to talk to them about what the world of Braille and what the world of blindness is all about. And of course, they got my view of that and as you well know uh, there are as many views of that as there are blind people but they were i think captivated and wanted to learn wanted to listen kept asking questions and you know for a, quite a while we didn't even have a prototype because they really wanted to learn how to design this from the ground up so that it would be uh, most useful uh, so they looked at my braille note taker they looked at other devices uh, you know that i use in my office and how i use them they really wanted the whole range of how a blind person functions uh, at work and in, perhaps in their personal life as well
0: i'm curious given how often this might happen to you because you're in mit and there might be people who think they've got the next big thing and they approach you for perspective do you get a sense sometimes and you think, yeah, this one is actually going to make some progress and this one isn't maybe based on how attentive the students are, uh, various other criteria?
1: Yes, I, I think you do get that. And especially when you've been here for a little while, you can detect a little bit about the degree of interest and motivation. I was contacted uh, in the fall semester this year by a group of sophomores, which is you know really the entry level to engineering. They were taking a uh, mechanical engineering class, and they came to me with a desire to create something that would have some impact on my uh, life as a blind person. They didn't really know what that was. And it was really interesting, Jonathan, because we sat here in my office. Uh, there were f- four or five of them, and they kept asking me questions about, you know, my daily life and my commute and how I get back and forth. And do you know that eventually, I, I don't even think I realized it was happening to me, we got to this incredible realization that, you know, I've got my routine pretty worked out. I don't have a lot of challenges each day. It's, the challenge is getting my work done on time. Yeah. Uh, but everybody's got that. And so one of the, the things we th- that I sort of said without even thinking about it as a challenge, is I said, you know, on winter, cold winter days, I have to wait for the bus and I'm freezing, but I cannot cover my ears because if I cover my ears, then I've really tuned out the world and it's uh, not safe and I lose my capability to know where I am. And they picked up on that and they said, gee, how about if we create or design a headband or a hat that would cover most of your ear but still allowed you to hear and so i i thought what a great idea i never really thought of that uh before even though i've just always known paul when it really when it's zero degrees out there uh fahrenheit and the wind's blowing and you're waiting for the bus your ears are just gonna and your face is just gonna get really cold and there's no i didn't even think about any other option and these uh, students came up with a prototype of a headband that that did exactly, you know what we talked about.
0: What a cool thing. Yeah, it's funny sometimes it's the low tech things that get overlooked exactly. and they can have such a high impact.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and and I've got, you know, there's a I want to say Jonathan that there's a class now at MIT called Principles and Practice of Assistive Technology. I never dreamed that at MIT there'd be a class with that title. It's a it's really a Uh, wonderful concept and uh, demonstration of, I think the way the world is going uh, to really have students and and faculty think about the fact that these concepts, basic concepts can be taught. And the way this class is set up uh, is that a team of students, usually three students, and these are all computer science students, are matched up with a person who has a disability, not necessarily blindness. And they discover together a challenge that they might work on for a semester. I served in that class a few years ago uh, when the class was started, maybe the first or second year. And the professor came to me and he said, you know, tell me a thing you'd like help with. And you know, Jonathan, it took me a day or two. I, I don't think that way. And I it wasn't immediately clear to me what I needed help with. I can't play baseball and I can't do a lot of things, but I don't I don't sit around thinking about that. So I said to him after a day or two I said, "Okay, there's three things. One is this was before Uber or Lyft. I said I can't if I'm on the street I can't hail a taxi without getting some help. Second thing is I have a brand new stove at home with a, a oven controls that's a touch pad and I cannot use that. And the third thing is that my daughter is a gifted soccer player, and I'd love a tactile pad paired with a chip on her jersey so that I can follow her movement around the field. Well, the professor was really taken by that last one, but he said, you know, that's more than a semester's uh, project, but that kind of thing is coming soon. So we did the stove project, and your comment about low-tech made me think of this. They devised a fairly low-tech but really effective way to solve the problem with my uh, stove. So it's really in the DNA here to be thinking about this. And there's one more really important thing I want to say about the class and about Team Tactile. This class that I've been talking about, Principles of Practice of Assistive Technology, is the only class in engineering here at MIT where there are more women students than men. And what I've been saying to people here is that if we want to attract young women to stay in engineering, because MIT is fortunate in that about half of our incoming class is female, but those numbers really fall off in graduate school and in the faculty, If we want to keep women, maybe we need to be thinking about what motivates young women to be interested in engineering. And I think uh, that the answer partially is in the fact that they're signing up for these classes.
0: Making a difference and making the world a better place.
1: Absolutely.
0: Mm. So you use the KNFB reader then and you're familiar with that. And I imagine that when you need to, you can pair it with a Bluetooth-capable Braille display. And this is the setup that many of us around the world now have. And that I was talking to Charlene and Tanya about how do you perceive this as being different? Were the products to get to the point that uh, it was in a state where it could it would get on the market? Is it a significantly more convenient experience?
1: I think it can be. You know, they're they're not near close to a finished product, but they're thinking about the concept, thinking about the design, and understanding how blind people are going to use them. That's sort of, I think, where they are. It's hard to say exactly, but if they're able to produce a device that has, you know, roughly one second conversion time uh, and able to do it, I think that really would change the playing field pretty dramatically. And I would relish the opportunity to carry it with me and be able to either read a menu or a wine list or a handout. Because, you know, nowadays there is so much more electronic information that I use with my computer or with a uh, manner of scanning a document. In my uh, office here, I have people who can, if I need something... In electronic format, I can usually get it pretty easily. But there is just a level of independence that's wrapped up in the notion of this tactile product that I think is terribly exciting. Um, Because when I buy a product at home, I don't want to ask my kids all the time to help me answer a question about this new radio or this new device that I just purchased. I want to be able to on-demand Look at that manual and read uh, a particular section. And I think that's what this device can help me do.
0: And I think for a congenitally blind person, somebody who's never been able to see and therefore doesn't really understand intuitively the spatial relationship that exists, that has to exist between a camera and a document, even with the technology we have now. Sometimes it can take several attempts. You might need to do a field of view report. If the do- I mean, you might, you might be able to get enough to know what the document is, and you do that when you're going through the mail, and you may be able to say, you know, I can throw this out. It's just a circular, or I can throw this out because it's from the IRS and I don't want to read it. But the concept of, of actually getting it in the view first time round so you can get the full page accurately, I think that is still – something that many congenitally blind people grapple with.
1: I I completely agree with you now. I I lost my sight as an infant, but I don't really have any recollection of being able to see. So I fit into that category uh, that you're describing definitely. I still struggle with even the best apps, even with KNFB Reader. I think it's a really high-quality app, but so often because of the variety of things that I'd like to I'd like to be able to scan. I even like to read receipts and that kind of thing. I just don't find that I have good luck. And yes, I'll be able to identify something. But if I'm looking for the date or the price or whatever, I'm I'm not patient enough to keep trying. But you're right. You have to do that f- field of view report. You know, having 60 or 70% of a page done just most often is not satisfying to me. And this ability to place the tactile device on the page so that you're not hovering or moving it around, I think significantly changes the ability to get a far more accurate reading of what, the, of what the text is.
0: It certainly will be very interesting to see where this goes. While I have you there, Paul, tell me a little bit about your work in the government relations field for MIT. Where are you coming to this from? Do you have a legal background?
1: You know, I, I did attend law school um, uh, here, but I most of what I do is represent MIT in uh, uh, local issues uh, with the city of Cambridge, state of Massachusetts, the state government, and the federal government. I have the great honor of um, escorting the president of MIT when he goes to Washington to talk about research funding, which in the United States is a is a big deal because the federal government traditionally uh, has supplied research funding uh, in fields of science, life sciences, energy, National Science Foundation, all the major agencies, and the funds are appropriated by uh, the Senate and the House uh, in Congress. So we go down to meet with members of Congress to talk about the importance of science to economic development and to uh, education. It's a pretty wide ranging group of responsibilities. It's that kind of government connection, but I also work with a lot of civic groups. I'm on a, a variety of boards uh, representing MIT, uh, the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce, and then lots of nonprofits that do education, science education, uh, and uh, places that would, would want an MIT representative on their, on their board. So I work with, you know, schools, I try to promote science education and since MIT is a big place and with Harvard, you know, we have two major universities in the city of Cambridge. There's lots about uh, traffic and parking and facility use. All those kinds of things uh, are handled by our office.
0: There is concern about the federal budget being pretty much slashed to the bone in a whole lot of areas. Do you have concerns at MIT about potential funding cuts to research that could have an impact on your work? Uh,
1: Yes, we do. Whenever there's a change in administration, there's a whole set of new people to meet. That's the first challenge that I have. And as the office that faces outward and has the responsibility to build those relationships – there's many new cabinet officials, uh, science advisors at the White House, people that I have to find a way for our president or senior faculty, senior officers to be able to speak to on the issues that I was describing. That's the first challenge and the first opportunity. Uh, I would say that you know some of the early comments made by this administration are worrying, in part because they seem to minimize the interest that a number of our students have in uh, energy-related issues, environmental issues, climate issues, and while there is significantly more money being talked about, being placed into defense, which also has a lot of science and research opportunity in it, it troubles me and it troubles us uh, all at MIT that some feels may not receive the kind of support uh, that they have in the past. Because I really think that the American system of higher ed since World War II has done a great job of blending research and education, and has provided a significant amount of economic development, which has driven uh, good employment numbers. And I think we're risking a lot by talking about reducing research support in these areas
0: yes the more i think about it the more i think that al gore's title an inconvenient truth for his famous documentary was extremely clever because it seems that when it comes to issues like climate change where there is overwhelming science and a series now of increasingly dramatic weather events it's almost as if look it's it's just inconvenient and the current administration just doesn't want to know. And it must be a little discouraging, I would think, that all this research, all this science, all this very careful academic work has taken place to get us to the point where we can understand what's happening with the climate and various other things. And then because it's inconvenient, it's just ignored.
1: Well, one other worry, Jonathan, on that uh, same front is that it's young people hours. may choose not to pursue careers in some of these fields. And I want our youngest and brightest to follow what they want to do. I I want them to follow their imagination. And if it is an interest in life sciences or climate issues or environmental science or renewable energy kinds of things, I hate to see support for their
3: 4 p.m.
1: Oh my goodness, their-
0: that is a that is a museum piece, mate. I haven't heard one of those for a long time.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's available for purchase.
0: Really? Yeah, just- <laughs> the old sharp talking calculator, right?
1: Yeah, I still I used to have two. And now I only have one. Uh, uh, the other one stopped functioning.
0: Oh, there you go. Anyway, I, I'm sorry. I, I was just too excited to Stop. pass that one up. here.
1: Yeah. yeah. Sure. So I think that uh, it, it, for that reason also, that uh, to restrict um, the opportunities that our young people have, our really talented students here at MIT, to pursue research in some of these areas, uh, you know, some of them may choose not to follow what they really want to do uh, because of the fact that there just may not be a career uh, in some of these fields. Mm.
0: It's been fascinating to catch up with you and learn about what you're doing and also your involvement with the Team Tactile Project. I take it that you will continue to be involved? Will you be a sort of an informal consultant for these women as they keep working on this?
1: I I sure hope so. I'm excited that they're about to graduate, but they've already talked to me about continuing with their work. Uh, I think some of them will, uh, at least two of them, I think, are staying in the area. So I'm, I'm confident that we will continue to have a good connection and opportunity to talk. We were interviewed on local television last week. So it was all over Boston t- uh, TV on a major station last week. Uh, they did a piece on it and I've been getting lots of feedback on that of people who saw it and were really taken with the story. I mean, they, these might be people who know me and know the kinds of things that I do and that I'm blind and I rely on these things, but the bigger piece of it in in this case is that six young women have chosen to study this and to really try to do something pretty revolutionary.
0: Fantastic. Paul, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to talk with you, and we'll keep watching this one with interest, so you never know, we may have another chat about this in future.
1: Jonathan, I'm really honoured to join you, and thank you for the work that you do to keep everybody uh, informed, educated, and even entertained. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side. A production of Mozen Consulting. On
0: the web at mozen.org.